Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. All right, Aspire listeners, I hope that you are ready and prepared for the greatness that you're about to hear. I have Tracy Browder with me, and she's a phenomenal educator, teacher from my state of Texas, and she is here to talk about a lot of different things on her journey as an educator, talking about equity and diverse, inclusive spaces, her brand new book with DBC, and then how to be a digital teacher and learner in this new age that we are in, in education. And Tracy, thank you so much for being with me today. I am happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Such an honor. Incredible to speak with you in person. And I'm just excited about all these wonderful topics. And before we dive in, will you just share with the listeners about your educational journey? Absolutely. You know, I was just talking to Barbara Bray earlier today, and she asked the same question. And I started it with a long time ago, my mom said, you're going to be a teacher. And you know, kids, when (laughs) when mom says go left, what do you do? You go as far right as you possibly can. She just noticed that I was in elementary school, tutoring high school kids in math. Like I just get things I would, they didn't understand. So I'd look at it like, give me that. And I'm like, oh, well you just do da 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 da. And she's like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, I I became a teacher and I was in corporate first, but teaching is, it's so perfect for me because it's about building those life lasting relationships. If if we're called to teach, Mm -hmm. where we're called to be part of lives, not just impact change. That's you do it and you're done and you move on where we're called to create these legacies. And so that that's really my background is wanting to be a part of children and families lives forever, as long as they'll have me to watch them grow. You know, I, I just help fertilize the seed. The parents have planted it. I'm simply fertilizing it. And I want to see it grow and bloom and turn into this magnificent beautiful thing that just truly impacts the world. Well, you are definitely do that. And I'm so glad that you talked about Barbara Bray. She's one of my favorite people. She has been a guest on the Aspire podcast. And then of course, I get to be on the Teach Better podcast network with her. So um, for those who are listening, if you haven't checked out Barbara Bray's podcast, make sure you do so. But enough about that. Let's talk about you and your journey. You talked about being a teacher. I know you are making a great impact, not only on your campus, but throughout this country. And with that, though, I know that you had some mental blocks that we've talked about on the side here, and I want to kind of continue that conversation with the audiences, because I know I personally have gone through this myself, right? As a teacher, Mm -hmm. I get into this mindset, or I did, is I'm just a teacher. I don't have any value beyond that, and I know that's a, a slippery slope. So we used to share kind of the mindset that you used to have, and that battle that you had a fight through to then learn how to have an influence beyond your own classroom. Absolutely. Ironically, I one of the first people I publicly shared this this block with is actually Ray. Mm. And I was sharing with her all these big ideas about my podcast and things I wanted to do. And I'm like, but Ray, I, I gotta be honest. I feel like I I feel like these things won't be received because just a teacher and you can see the look on her face like you're you're so much more than a teacher than just it's not that label that needs to be just eradicated from vocabulary because just a teacher indicates that we're not enough Mm -hmm. indicates that we're 
we're not qualified. And in fact, it's just the opposite because literally every single profession, every single trade has to have a what? A teacher. So if, if we, I've even started using the word, not that anything is wrong with teacher, but I'm truly, we are as educators, we're practitioners. We have to continue to stay abreast of research. We practice in our classrooms. We, we collaborate. We, so we're practitioners. We are, we are so much more than just a teacher. Th those words should never, ever come out of our mouths. And I can partner and collaborate with superintendents from other states even and be totally comfortable because I know I'm changing lives. Mm -hmm. That's that's the sphere, that's the mindset that we should be in is that we are life changers. We're not just a teacher. So as teachers, a lot of people say teachers and leaders and referring to leaders as the administration. When, when we're talking about educators, we should really be saying leaders collectively because that's what we are. So that had been such a big barrier for me because so many things that I was involved in, I'm, I'm, I was making a difference, but the question would be, okay, where are you? And I would have to say, I found myself saying, I, I'm just a teacher and that shouldn't come out of my mouth. Um, I should have completely been rephrasing that to say, I am a proud teacher of 17 plus years changing lives like how we package things that that's who we are like I'm not I'm just a teacher I'm a teacher and I'm a daggum good teacher too yep. so the stigma with that needs to be changed and I'm so glad that you said that because just a teacher minimizes the profession and I know for a fact that you are so much more than just providing information every single day to your kids right so what are some things that you do to go beyond what a typical teacher or maybe what a typical person thinks of a teacher that is impacting kids it's a few things first of all within the walls of the classroom as long as i've been teaching i've made a personal commitment that every year that kids come in, it's their first time with me. Mm -hmm. So I should never come across as you've been teaching 17 years. I should have that same excitement as I did. I usually say about year three, because year one, you're kind of feeling <laughs> things out by three. You're like, I'm good, I'm getting this. So I want to have that same passion and excitement every single year for every single group of kids. Um, that's within the walls and space of the classroom. Beyond that, we are called to make a difference in the world as educators. And I, I feel like I need to ask every educator to ask yourself, if you don't feel like teaching is a calling for you, ask yourself, what is it? What is your purpose? Because I get that not every person truly is called to teaching. You arrive for different reasons, but you're here. And we are called to make a difference. However we got here, we're here and that is our purpose. So do you want to impact your campus? Do you want to impact and change your district? Do you want to understand laws and what impacts things within your state? Do you want to go broader than that? So we have to decide what is our purpose beyond the walls of our classroom. If we're administrators, 
beyond the walls of our campus, we're called to make a difference. We are supposed to impact and change the world. So we just need to not box ourselves into the walls of the classroom, the walls of a school, because we are the ones who make a difference. We, we get to pour into, when you think about it in this context, generations. Mm -hmm. And so what we're molding, what we're creating, are we creating global citizens who understand how to respect each other, how to listen to each other without, I'm just trying to get my thought across, how to navigate difficult and challenging situations. So being a teacher is so much more than the textbook and the curriculum. We, I just told Barbara, kids are with us. And I know we know this, but if you really stop and think about it, we have kids for more than 187 days out of the school year. We have them for most of the day. By the time they get home, it's bath, it's a little homework, it's sports, and it's time to go to bed. So who are they socializing with? Us. And, and what are we doing with that time? Well, I know that you have a purpose and a passion that you serve every single day. And uh, I want to dive into this very, very important topic because with the pandemic, a lot of things came to light. Um, and one of those topics is equity. And it's I feel like it's turning into a buzzword and I don't want it to lose its meaning because it's extremely important, right? Like social emotional learning, it, it always existed and now it's kind of shown a light, right? And the same mm -hmm. I feel like is going on with equity is it's always been there. We, we should be serving all students, but that's not occurring and there's been a light shown on that. So for you, what would you say for a campus or a district that it hasn't really assessed equity, you know, what are some practices that they can do to really search to see if they are serving all students? Number one, you know, just, just spend a day walking the halls and listen to conversations See who's included in conversation, conversations, who's not. This is not that typical classroom observation type of process. This is truly with an open, clean, pure lens that you're solely looking at interactions within the building. What is the environment? What is the atmosphere? When I go into the cafeteria, what does that look like? If teachers are talking to kids in the hall, is there this common trend? Is it always the black male student? Like, what am I seeing in my campus? What parents are always in the office because we're calling with discipline concerns? What do our SPED numbers look like? What do our gifted numbers look like? Those are the questions that we need to ask ourselves. You know, and, and it, does my campus embrace and have programming that amplifies the voices of the LGBTQ, like what, what am I missing? I, I am supposed to foster and grow this inclusive environment. What pockets are being unintentionally excluded? Because with equity, I, I, I really want to believe that a lot of things are not intentional. I just think we need to do a better job at awareness and that comes from taking those kinds of walks. It comes from looking at data and finding trends in data. It comes with having those challenging conversations, but being you have to create this environment where we're comfortable talking about the uncomfortable, uh, where, where that's the norm and it's not, an, it's not this rare thing that happens. I'll say this really quickly, like when we, historically we know that um, 
a lot of times it is the black male student that has the higher discipline referrals and things like that. But we've always looked at those trends and we've always tried to improve in those things. So looking at those types of things, having these types of conversations, what pockets are we not serving? How can we do better? The training that comes with that, that's not, Joshua, I hope it's okay if I say this, that's not critical race theory. Yep. Um, and, and I know we don't want to go down that path, but I, if people can just understand when we want to create inclusive spaces and make sure that all students have the same access, the same opportunity, the same resources. And I say same, when we talk about equity, I may have to provide a few more resources in, in my home neighborhood in Oak Cliff that I wouldn't have to provide in Highland Park. Um, because they have the access to technology within their homes. In Oak Cliff, we're missing that a lot. And in, in this other area in Dallas, there's not a food desert. In my home community, there's no Walmart. There used to be, but now it's gone and it was only there for a couple of years. So you have kids coming to school who are hungry because they don't have access to decent food. We're not looking through those layers. So you take their exhaustion from being a supporting role at home, being hungry, you take that as a discipline problem. And that becomes that, that I think that unintentional, that you're not really aware of the layers of what's happening. So that's why we have to have these types of conversations. And Tracy, I'm not afraid of that, that word or that topic. So feel free to dispel any misinterpretations of what critical race theory is. I, I know there's a lot of information that's going out there that's correct and some that's not. Do you want to talk about that topic at all and, and dispel some of the misperceptions of, of what critical race theory is? Well, I won't go too far down the path, but I will <laughs> say <laughs> that, you know, just in, in my research and in talking to some experts who have been doing this work many, many years before I even stepped into the space, research shows that critical race theory is something that is typically not even taught at this level yep. of education. It's usually in the higher learning institutions. So it seems to me that post George Floyd's death and actually murder and mm -hmm. so many, the, the lens really, really, really being brought in on how are we truly treating people? And that in turn made the institution of education really take a close look at what we're doing and how we're doing it. We've always looked at numbers. We've always looked at how can we be better. We've always tried to make sure that we're creating these diverse and inclusive spaces. But now that a light has been brought to it, it's been misconceived as indoctrination. Right. And that is, that is not what this is about. So I really try to encourage people, do, do your own research. Mm -hmm. Pick, dive in and learn for yourself. You know, I have two black sons and I've talked about this on my podcast and I, I could really share some painful stories of things that have happened to my own two sons yep. in society as well as in school. Emails from teachers that literally stabbed me in the gut. You know, they're just awful. And I'm, I'm looking at it. I know you don't talk to other parents about their child, the way you're talking to me about my beautiful, amazing, talented, gifted, game-changing children. Right. But we often don't see our kids as that. 
with that being said, we look at how we're how we're servicing children, what resources we have, what resources we don't have. And, and in my book, I actually talk about, I've encountered some conversations where people say things like people need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, meaning where I grew up in Oak Cliff, for instance, they can do better. They, they choose to be on public assistance. They choose to, well, that they is me. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those products. Right. And what I'll say to that is, when a situation in an independent school district makes national headlines, such as it took students from South Oak Cliff High School going to a game in another school in the northern sector of this particular school district. And when they went to that campus and they were like, this is like state of the art, what? They, and it's the same school district. And while this school has the huge, like the, the, the trash containers that are in the cafeteria, they're all over the building, just taking in water that's leaking from the ceiling. There's mold, there's mildew, the, the blinds on the windows are all torn and hanging off and you can't use certain classrooms because it's so flooded and, and you can't use this water fountain, you can't use this. So the kids chose, once they, once they saw that, they did a walkout because parents had been advocating for quite some time um, for, for change and it wasn't happening. But when the kids, when these football players saw that in my same school district, we don't have this and this other school has all of this. Right. So uh, there was there was actually a renovation project that was kind of already in the works behind the scenes before this hit the news. but. Um, a $52 million renovation project happened at this school in Oak Cliff. And it was amazing, but there's still leaks. And so they don't know how that happened, but, but they're addressing that. But it took, what if these kids hadn't gotten on a bus mm -hmm. to go to this other school to see how different, it was like two different worlds. What if that never happened? And these, these kids took the risk of being those bold leaders to say, no, we deserve the exact same learning environments and opportunities to be successful as our counterparts in the Northern sector of our own community. We deserve that. That's not critical race theory, Joshua. That's, that's simply equitable learning environment. Yeah. How, how possibly? Can they be two completely different, like literally it looks like two different planets because it, the school is six minutes away from the school that I grew up, it, 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 that would have been my high school. Mm -hmm. um, that's not critical race theory. No. That's making sure that every single child in every single demographic has access, has opportunity, has resources that the teachers have good learning spaces, you know, labs, resources, the technology, that's providing equitable learning spaces. And, and if we can't even do that, we are truly missing the mark to set up all children to be successful. Yeah, you, you said it so well. And Tracy, I don't, I don't know if you know this, or maybe my listeners don't know this, but I have three different races as far as children. I have white children, I have a Hispanic son, and I have a, a black son. And 
for me, it's important because I, I'm viewing it from three different experiences, right? And, and are they equal within our, our school district? And I, I don't ever want any of my children to feel like they are in a different situation or they aren't provided the same resources as their sibling or their peers. And so your story there is, is completely true um, as far as everybody needs to have equal resources. But I'm also thinking about the teachers and the educators that are listening. You know, what are some strategies that you like to implement within your classroom to make sure that it is an inclusive space? I think one of the first steps is when we talk about our classroom, we, we've also got to understand that there's a micro level of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And that's each individual relationship with each family. We truly have to cultivate those relationships individually. That means doing it old school, getting on the phone, having those conversations, and, and just get to know the family, check in, see if they're okay. And so that's how you're learning about all the different families, their story. Like I, a couple of times I've called parents and they know that's my routine is just check in, see how you're doing. Sometimes I would get tears just because they were having a bad day. I know I just drifted a little bit, but that's the power of building those relationships. So when you build those relationships, you get to hear the stories and it may take time. You know, there, there may be some, some trust walls that you have to kind of chip away at, but when you build that trust, and here's the other thing about building that trust, we can't just pick up the phone to report, you know, the tough stuff. It has to truly be genuinely relationship building you know, tell them a little bit, bit about yourself, ask about themselves, ask about their kids. What, what do they like? How do they thrive? What, what challenges do your kids experience and how do you help them through that? Like when we're looking at the parents as the experts in their children, because they are, that's building that relationship. So that's one of the easiest things to do is simply invest in relationships with the families, with the children, and you're going to kind of start understanding the, the, the home dynamic. And the one common factor with all the children in the classroom is just that, the classroom. So you have all of these people and all of their different stories and experiences. And it's up to us to make sure that we amplify all of those different experiences, that every single voice in our classroom feels seen, feels valued, and if we can simply, it's so in the little things, like even just, what did you do this weekend? But if we started with making it okay, and if I tell a story of what I did this weekend, and it's literally absolutely nothing, but I played tic-tac-toe with my family, and then you're, you're creating the space of, I'm not expecting you to tell me you went to Pump It Up or you went to Alley Cats. You did all of this amazing stuff that costs money. So if, if I'm coming across first and taking that risk and, and making nothing look great, then kids are more willing to share. And, and so kids feel represented. They feel like they have a stake in the game. There, it's so, so if, if I don't lead the conversation that way and there's a few kids talking about the great, amazing things, those kids that don't have those great, amazing stories, they aren't going to share. So it, it's it's literally in the simple things. And, and that's that's how you lay the foundation of an equitable space and an equitable classroom. But you have to keep talking to families at home. You have to keep creating a space for the family to share 
what their challenges are. And we have to advocate to meet those needs in virtual learning. I, this past year, I actually was a virtual teacher. So I was going to school, the kids were home and there was one particular kiddo, the virtual structure that we had, we could service kids from other campuses. And this kiddo had a device from the district, but it wasn't working. And the mom said, yeah, well, I tried this, that, and this, that. And so I partnered with her. It literally took like a month and a half, only because the district was so backlogged, but their phones were just overloaded with calls. But she and I stayed on the phone. I would make the calls to people in the district. And she was just like, I can take that burden off of you because this is a barrier to access for your child learning. That's on me. That's on me. It's my job to make sure that you have the resources that you need so your child can be successful. I wouldn't have found that out had I not picked up the phone just to have that first conversation. So that building the relationship, it really does matter. And it's not just the fluffiness of it. It really, really does matter. And those relationships that I built this year were truly the foundation in filling in the gaps for all of this, um, the barriers to access that kids had. Yeah, I love that, Tracy. Because it's not just to make relationships, like you said, for fluff, or because mm-hmm. you feel like you have to do it part of your, your position or your job, but you're doing it to, to find out what is needed for the student and for the family to be successful. Perfect segue to your new book, your your first book, who you're partnering, um, you're writing with DBC Inc. And I just want to know the story behind that because you're with Shelley Burgess, Beth Huff, uh, Don Harris. I mean, wow, what a group of educators and leaders and, <laughs> and writers. So talk about just the, the journey to get to the point to, to write your first book, but then also about the topic equity and what are some you know strategies and things that you're working through in the book to share with the readers. Well, so a couple of things, Beth, Shelley, Dawn, and I are working together every week. The four of us actually partner leading Beth and Shelley owned the lead lab chat that happens on Twitter every week. I was actually guest facilitating a chat for them the week that George Floyd was murdered. So on that Saturday, you know, it's, it's leading the chat. And, and the chat I chose was actually to kind of change our thinking from, from closing gaps mm-hmm. in COVID, stop the deficit thinking and change it to an achievement mindset. During the week, there's a slow chat on that same topic. Well, during that week was, of course, when George Floyd was killed. And it, it was very painful for me, just like it was for everyone else. But it was, it, it literally tore me apart. Um, I think because I, I see my husband in George Floyd. I see my sons in George Floyd. And um, I could not keep talking about closing gaps. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what to do because I was so consumed with emotion. And I had to just kind of go introspective for, for a period of time. And then came some clarity to take action and not be quiet and be at least be try to make a difference, try to be an advocate for change through educating others and having conversations, opening the door for conversations. So I asked Shelly and Beth, you know, look, can we talk about what's in front of us? And they 
they were hurting too. And so they were like, absolutely. As long as you want to have this space to lead those conversations, do that. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing that and it was powerful. But just like when we do this work in school districts, you, you need support. So I reached out to Dawn Harris and that was our first time actually meeting. She just, she was this presence that I felt drawn to on social media. So I asked her, would she help me lead those conversations in the lead lab space? And she beautifully said yes. And so the four of us since May of 2020 have been leading predominantly equity, anti-racism, bias conversations. We're slowly starting to open up to other leadership conversations. So that's what we do every single week. And my book initially was all about the happiness and joy of teaching and when I submitted my manuscript, they loved it. But they said, Tracy, there is, there's, there's this fiber of equity woven all through this book. And we really need you to pull that out. And so that's what I've been working on passionately and having to work through some mental blocks. I actually just wrote about this in the book that when I started working on specifically the topic of equity, it was a little bit before the really big push for critical race theory deconstruction in the school systems. And so I started writing that before then and I'm writing amidst it. That comes with some barriers because you're thinking, oh my gosh, if I write this, are people going to think this is critical race theory? If I write this, is it going to get snatched from bookshelves? Is it going to make it to the bookshelf? All of these things. And I literally just wrote this portion of the book and said, you know what? I know my purpose, I know my why, I know my story, I know the story of countless kids. I am called to make a difference and that is not critical race theory. And so that section of the book, it actually talks about overcoming fears of leading by learning. And so we we can't let what we think people think stop us from doing this work. That's the, the book actually starts out by sharing some some really intimate stories just to help people understand because this is going to sound bad but I don't mean it badly privilege can be blinding because people aren't in those shoes and they haven't had exposure to some of the scenarios like walking into a store and being watched uh, which happens to me all the time or being followed in the store having your badge checked while I actually witnessed another woman of a different race actually stealing something and had to point the person to you need to go check her bag. So if we're truly, if I am truly wanting to help people understand, I've got to share my stories. So the first part of the book intimately shares some very painful personal stories with questions around them. How does this make you feel? You know, have you ever thought about these scenarios? Do you know people who you might need to ask, what is their story? And so it's three parts. It's me telling the stories. How can you do this work? And then the last big part is how together we can build equitable schools and classrooms. The strategies that come with that really is looking within first, making sure that you're connected with the right people, making sure that you're going deeply within yourself, even to places you don't want to go. Um, without staying in the space of guilt, because guilt comes with awareness. You have to give those feelings and emotions their credence and acknowledge them and process them, but you can't stay there. So it really encourages people to move beyond 
that guilt and you can learn while you're leading. And that's a whole section of the book, Leading by Learning. And that's actually what I titled that part of the chat that I was leading with Shelly and Beth early on is we can't, with everything happening in the world, we can't learn first, then lead. This, this work is also building the plane while flying it. So we're going to make mistakes. We're, we're, but, but, you know, if we're talking to our colleagues, students in certain conversations, you know, if we're transparent, if we're saying, I don't have all the answers, but together we're going to be better together. We're, we're going to be better together. Um, people are willing to go on that journey with you. You know, it's, it's as simple as, you know, just in the classroom, in our professional setting, like for instance, when George Floyd was murdered, if I am, if I happen to be a white teacher, for instance, and I have black students in my classroom, if I just did the simple gesture of just walking by a student and putting my hand on the shoulder, that simply says, I know, I know. But when things are happening on the news, like Botham John, Ahmaud, Ahmaud Aubrey, when all of these things are happening and we as educators act like we don't see it, the El Paso shooting, um, the, the Asian spree of, of, of the spas, when we, when we come into our classrooms and we, we don't acknowledge, and we don't have to acknowledge verbally, that's the thing. Because at home, you've got to believe and know with all your heart that when, when Botham Jean was murdered by a police officer going into a wrong, what she thought was her apartment, or when Ahmaud Aubrey was killed just from jogging in his neighborhood and looking at a model home, which we do all the time. That's our weekend pleasure is looking at model homes. We're talking to our kids about, son, this is why, this is why we're selective about who you hang out with, or this is why we're having conversations with parents of your friends who are white so they understand what you have to learn. They understand the rules you have to play by so they can talk to their children and support the rules that you have to live by and understand that they are different and help be aware when you're in public. So we're, we're having month long conversations, correction, month long conversations after something happens in the news. Whereas when we get to class and school, nothing. And I'm, as a student, I'm burdened with all of this information. I am watching, even on YouTube, my family is finding these YouTube videos and walking through, you know, how, don't, don't walk away, don't get scared, don't panic, don't, you see this very moment where they did this and then this responded, like, that's what kids are going through. And we want to just come in and do our normal every day. And sometimes some of those same kids are the ones that get called into the office and we're not seeing children. And, and these are the types of things that we have to change. And these are the conversations that we have to have. These are the stories we have to share. That is the only way, the only way that we are going to facilitate change. Powerful stuff, Tracy. I can't wait for your book. Yeah, I know it's going to change a lot of lives and, and hopefully change the, the educational space too because like you said, those those conversations need to happen. That's the starting point. And we can't be afraid of those conversations. We can't 
pretend that things are not occurring in in our world there is a burden that's on our students on our teachers and, and our parents and our community and we need to make sure that we're we're having those conversations and acknowledging that those things are occurring this podcast is a proud member of the teach better podcast network better today better tomorrow and the podcast to get you there you can find out more at teachbettercom slash podcast now let's get back to the episode I'm truly believing that you don't sleep based on the amount that you're working with. I know you're collaborating with Barbara Bray and Stephanie Rothstein. Rothstein. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also want to talk about your, your podcast. So can you just talk about those two projects that you're working on? Absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll start with Bray and Rothstein and what mm-hmm. a beautiful relationship that is. Barbara hosted a New Year's Eve Zoom party this past New Year's Eve. And Meanwhile, all last school year, Stephanie in California with a high school honors class and Tracy Browder here in the Metroplex with the kindergarten class, both had been separately diving into inquiry-based learning, design thinking, all of this innovative freestyle learning, like really kids owning their learning and us simply supporting and guiding. So that's what we had both been doing. Well, we go to Barbara's Zoom New Year's Eve celebration and she had us in breakout rooms. So we're introducing ourselves and both of us talked about inquiry-based learning. And we were both just kind of lit up like, oh my gosh, we have got to keep talking about this. But time ran out. So we met separately and realized that we do indeed both have the same passions and realized that we had to do something together collaboratively with that. Well, you know, then it all sounds good and you're excited in the moment, but then school happens, life happens. And so um, Stephanie says, you know, Tracy just wouldn't give up. Those are her words, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) But we kept brainstorming and trying to figure out how to make it work. And we just couldn't really figure it out until we decided, you know what? The kids can introduce themselves and what they're passionate about on Flipgrid they can start engaging and having conversation on Flipgrid. They can ask each other questions. They can learn about what each other's working on. So the conversation on Flipgrid was absolutely amazing. And Stephanie and I would respond and interact. Barbara hopped on Flipgrid, so it was beautiful. And then finally, in Texas, you know this, February, we were hit with the winter storm. Oh, yeah. So yeah, so for kindergartners, you know, the kids, told all these stories about having to leave one house to go to another house because that house lost power. And then the, this house, the, the there was a flood. And so the, some kids moved to three and four houses. Sure. A couple of my kids were still in caps, coats, and gloves, like for weeks, months afterward. Well, they couldn't go to a hotel really because of COVID. At least their family chose not to. Uh-huh. So, you know, the kids are seeing all of this. And so I told the kids, I'm like, you know what? We are impacted temporarily. We don't have access to sanitary water on a temporary basis. There are other countries, this is there every day. And so Barbara, Stephanie and I continued to collaborate throughout this journey. And I was sharing this with Barbara and Stephanie and Barbara said, Tracy, that's a sustainable development goal water crisis and doing better with our water and with that. And so she led me down that path and you know, I researched it, came back to the class. Everybody was passionate about it. Um, and so we found World Vision leads a global 6K for water. 
talked to them and they were like, well, why don't you guys lead a mock global 6K? Because we didn't want to do the fundraising piece of it. And the the kids created videos. Um, They invited the campus to join this mock global 6K walk. We watched stories of kids in Africa and other countries and how they how they walked at least three to six miles to get water and it was unsanitary water. And so that was blowing the kids' minds, literally. That was the big research for us. Stephanie's kids were doing individual projects. And then when we got together on Zoom, my kids listened to all of their projects. My kids explained what they were doing. When we got off the call, my kids said, well, Mrs. Browder, all of these kids created websites. Can we create a website? So I taught the kids, I didn't just create it, I taught them about, we used Wix and I showed them how to develop the website. We talked about how to choose a domain name. We talked about why hashtags and how they're important. So they learned so much about web design. Um, Parents led the breakout rooms and the kids created the content for the website. And uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So, that all developed just from a New Year's Eve celebration, just from three educators doing everything we could to try to connect these two classes across the country, um, amplify their voices, celebrate global citizenship. And we, we just have a big, beautiful, powerful story to tell and we'll continue being innovative in the years to come. So Tracy, I I could probably talk to you for another two hours and it would feel like five minutes, but I want to talk about this last topic, which is your podcast, because I I know that you also have another side project that you do that's very impactful. So will you just share a a little bit of the story behind how that came to be? Absolutely. So it is Intelligogy, the podcast, and I'm going to start by saying there's been a very intentional pause right now so I can finish my book. I am really laser focused on investing all of my time in the book. However, there are like 60 to 70 episodes that you can just binge and catch up on and I'll be back real soon. But the the podcast is actually, Intelligogy came from heightened intelligence through the art of pedagogy. So hence Intelligogy. And the whole goal is disrupting educational normalcy and challenging our thinking and, and, and pushing, really, really pushing to, to be better and to have some type of action at the end of the conversation. So we look at social emotional learning, we talk about social justice, we talk about rocking remote learning. Um, there There's some episodes that actually have my sons and my husband on, and those are the episodes that people seem to love the most is just really <laughs> listening to the family. So, you know, I, I kind of explore the whole earth of education. I don't even know if that's a phrase, but not just this one pocket. So it, it's it's a beautiful podcast that just takes you on a fun journey with me, but challenging you to grow along the way. Yes. Make sure that you're checking out the podcast and honestly, everything that Tracy is, is creating. There's so much value in, in everything that you're putting out there. So Tracy, for our listeners, how can they connect with you on social media? Easiest, quickest way is on Twitter. I'm Tracy Browder on Twitter. Also have an Intelligogy account on Twitter. 
My website is tracybrowder.com and I'm, I'm on all platforms, but mainly on Twitter. That's going to be the best way to, to connect. Awesome. So Tracy, I always love ending on this question for our listeners, no matter where they are in their journey, what is something that they can do tomorrow or next week to enhance their leadership journey? Stop wasting time, believe in yourself, and honestly, like Nike says, just do it. But when I say stop wasting time, I mean, you know, we scroll and scroll and scroll on our phones. We sit and watch Netflix all the time. And there's a book, uh, Five Things Successful People Do Before 8 a.m. It is a game changer. So if you're really ready to make a difference, uh, take a look at that book. It's written by Terry Savelle Foy. And when you read it, you realize, oh, wow. You don't think about how much time you're wasting until somebody literally puts it in your face. But it's truly actionable steps to, you, you learn about all of these stories of these powerfully successful people who simply just changed their daily routine. And so you just heard me say a minute ago, I had to pause on recording. Why? Because I have a goal of seeing this book through and getting it back in DBC's hands. And the only way that can happen is if I manage my time better. So that means I can't record podcast episodes right now, or I can't be on all the social media chats, or I can't just be scrolling. I can't be binging something. So what you do with your time really, really matters. So choose what you're going to let go of and move forward quickly. I think that is a wonderful strategy for not only your time, but then also with, with equity, right? Is the assessment, figuring out what needs to change and then doing it, like you said, Absolutely. like Nike. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy, I have enjoyed this immensely. You are an advocate for change and it is a true honor to speak with you this evening. Thank you, Joshua. It was my pleasure. I'm glad you had me on.